Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like all other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself, finish it, will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, the greatness of this passage is not lost on us. We are reminded that we are saved by Your grace and by that alone. And that it calls for the recognition of our own sin and to repent and to confess. And that, Father, we, uh, we rely on this, 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 this grace that we receive, our sins being washed away, our being born again, our, our adoption into your, your family, Father, to, to make the difference in, in, in not just our eternity, but even in our, our present day, to experience that abundant living. And so we pray, Father, that You will help us to get over ourselves when, when pride and arrogance begins to, to creep into our hearts insidiously. We pray, Father, to, to discern it. And we pray also to discern even more deeply this passage. We pray for help in that matter. So as we study tonight, Father, we seek Your blessing and to be wise beyond our, our human ability, Father, by being helped through Your Spirit to have eyes that see and ears that hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a, a, a very well-known passage out of the Bible, Luke chapter 18. The, the issue, though, of the text is found in verse 9. It is the establishing of, of moral righteousness where he says, confident of their own righteousness, referring to the Pharisees. They're confident in their own righteousness. Now, this word righteousness is not a word that, that connects with a lot of people because no one really talks about righteousness anymore outside of religious circles and when they do talk about it, it's usually laden with some negative connotations. Uh, maybe the, the word is connected some with judge, being judgmental, some with uh, you know, a rigid spirit, condescending. And so people usually take a, a very uninterested stance with righteousness, thinking that it's just not all that important to think about anymore. And they are wrong. Throughout the Bible, both the Old and New Testament, the word is, is connected to this, this idea of acceptance. It's the idea. Righteousness has within it the idea of, of, of passing scrutiny. Suppose your, your daughter is trying to get into one of the best universities in the nation and has worked really hard to, to get in. And one day you get a letter in the mail that says your daughter has passed all of the entrance exams she has done exceedingly well with all of the interviews with the deans of the college and the references are impeccable. She has been accepted to enter as a freshman in the fall. And as a parent, you would not say, 
Oh, that's a nice thing to hear. No, you would never forget that letter. You would keep it. You would file it someplace. There would be this deep abiding sense of satisfaction. One of uh, my favorite scenes is from a movie uh, about acceptance. It's from a movie entitled Antoine Fisher. Antoine Fisher talked about this movie before. It's a, it's a, it's, the movie is about a young black man who was born in prison to a drug-addicted mother. His father is dead at the time. He is shipped nearly from birth from one place to another, foster home to foster home, until he comes to the home of Mrs. Tate, who they are supposed to call my dear. But she is anything but dear. And rather than a loving, nurturing, and safe place, Mrs. Tate's home is brutal and harsh and abusive. And there is this very poignant scene where Antoine and his other foster brothers are looking through this old Sears catalog and they're pointing to different models on the different pages in the magazine and declaring that that woman, that model on the pages of that Sears catalog, that's their mother. But Antoine survives my dear's home, but he grows up angry. And as a young adult, he joins the Navy, and he, because of the many fights with his shipmates, because of the problem with anger, he is sent to see a counselor, a Commander Williams. This counselor invests in Antoine's well-being, and through their growing relationship, the counselor says the next step in, in finding some healing in your life is that you need to go back and find your biological family. And it takes a little while for Antoine to kind of muster up the courage to go seek out his biological mother, having not seen her for years. But he takes all of his leave and he heads to Cleveland, his hometown, where he thinks his mother is still living. And with much effort, he does come into contact with an aunt and an uncle. And they're, they're glad to see him. They never knew what happened to him once he was taken into foster care. And this uncle, in turn, takes him to see his mother who was strung out on drugs and living in a crack house in the middle of the projects. And he, he talks with her and he makes his peace with her and he returns with his uncle and they, they drive back home together and they have this conversation where he has told his mother, now that he's found her, that he has made his peace with how she has not been there for him and not been a mother to him, but that he forgives her, but he's never going to see her again. And they walk up the sidewalk to the aunt's house and they open the door and they are met by a crowd of relatives that the aunt has called while they were gone. Just tens and, 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 and tens of people that are, are inside of this house and as Antoine wades through the herd of relatives who are mobbing him and introducing themselves to him and hugging him and telling them how they are related to him, he is ushered into the, uh, there's this, these doors that are slid back and he is ushered into this large, beautiful dining room with a feast. It is an incredible feast, a delectable, luscious feast. And seated around that table are all the old aunts and, and uncles, the patriarchs, the matriarchs of the family, the ancients of the Fisher family. And the oldest is a matriarch who is seated at the center of the table and she silently uh, gestures for, for Antoine to come close. And she looks at him and touches his face. And in a moment of mammoth emotion, Denzel Washington directs with great deafness, with great touch. She says to him, barely audible, just above a whisper, she says, Welcome. And he is transformed. Why? It's because he is accepted and embraced. Whatever the criteria, whatever it was, 
He passed it and was welcomed with open arms. And when we see that, that part of the film, there's something that gets us deep down because there is something deeper going on here. Now back in Luke chapter 18, we say, righteousness. I don't relate to that. Oh, really? Well, maybe we just take it out of the world of religion and we put it in the discipline of psychology and we call it self-esteem. In other cultures, it's about the saving of faith or the avoidance of shame. That's the thing. Just talk to Ken Heisen about how important that is in Japan where he ministers. But we are, are looking and longing and searching for the same thing in every culture. In every age, there is this hunger for acceptance, for approval of, of this, possible, this, this um, positive verdict after passing the scrutiny to be handed down on us. And to say that it doesn't really matter is sort of a hypocritical thing. You know, we can, we can scorn ancient cultures for wanting to, to, to gain glory or wanting glory on the, on the battlefield or by, by uh, making some name for themselves through some great feat. But on the flip side, they would scorn us for spending billions of dollars on Botox and liposuction and for going to therapy for years on end. The point is that we need something outside of us that says that we're okay, we're accepted, we're received, we're acknowledged, we're approved. Now again, a lot of people say that they don't need anyone else's approval, but you've got to be careful with that because it's the path to narcissism at best. And it's the path to becoming a hardened and evil person, not caring about anybody else at worst. The point is, is that we are all hungry for this kind of approval. And the problem is that we try to get it in the wrong places. And when we get at least some, some taste of it, a, a whiff of it, a trace of it on our lips, it's never enough. Go back to Genesis, the opening chapters of Genesis. We're in the middle of God's approval in the garden. We're naked and we're not ashamed. No inhibitions, no hang-ups, no shame, no anxiety, just harmony and perfect friendship with God. But then the sin enters the world because we looked for that significance and that approval somewhere else. And that's when human beings begin to hide from God and to hide from each other, which now brings us back to Luke 18. Jesus is addressing this issue of right, righteousness in Luke chapter 18 with these two figures. One is the right way, the other is the wrong way. The way of the Pharisee we will call the outside-in approach. The way of the tax collector is the inside-out approach. Now, let's, let's consider this outside-in approach. Verse 11, The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. The first thing we notice about this man is his understanding of sin. Number one, it is external. It's completely focused on rules and, and, and behavior and regulations. It's not looking inside at character, but outside at the behavior. And sin is perceived as, as discrete individual actions. I do not rob. I do not harm other people. I do not cheat on my wife. Notice what he does not say. He does not say, I thank you, Lord, because I'm becoming more patient and kinder, more loving to people I used to have problems with and, and living with joy even when times are, are, are getting rough. His understanding of sin and virtue is completely immersed in external actions, the keeping and the breaking of rules. 
But not only is it external, it's also separatist. The Pharisee in verse 11 separates himself from the tax collector. He says, he is not like even this tax collector over to my side. He separates himself from the person he perceives to be a sinner. And the reason he is able to do that is because, as I said earlier, the Pharisees see this, you know, this, this idea of sin, the world of sin, as, as discrete individual actions. Therefore, sin is something out there rather than something that's in here in the heart that I've got to deal with. One of the ways I avoid sin is to stay away from people who sin. That externalism leads to separatism. I'm so glad that I'm not like other men. Even like this tax collector. And if you have this externalistic view of sin, then you have a separatist view of people, which explains why the Pharisees were always upset when Jesus spent time with sinners and and even ate with them. But it's also involving cultural commandments. He says in verse 12, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now notice what is happening here. In verse 9, the Pharisees say that He is better than everyone else and He looks down on them. Then in verse 11, He says that He's not like these other people, like this tax collector. Uh, tax collector. How? Well, He says, I do not rob. He doesn't harm people with evil. He doesn't cheat on His wife. Then He says in verse 12 that He fasts twice a week and gives a tenth of His income. Did you catch what He slipped in there? There is nothing in the Bible about fasting twice a week. You would fast on certain occasions like the Day of Atonement. There were national fasts from time to time. But nothing in the Mosaic Law about fasting twice a week. But notice what he says. I don't rob, but they rob so I'm better. I don't commit adultery, but they commit adultery so I am better. I fast twice a week and they don't. So that makes me better. Now, just for the record, robbery and adultery are wrong, just in case you were wondering. (laughs) But this fasting thing is something altogether different. Fasting is a great thing. It's a good thing. And he chose to do it. But he also tweaks it just a little. He takes something that is popular in the culture. When, When you think of the Jewish culture during the time of Jesus, during the first century, uh, B.C., 1st century A.D., you had three great acts of piety, the giving of alms, uh, praying, and, and fasting. And he takes something that's popular in that culture and its understanding of an act of piety, and he raises it to the standard of divine will. He doesn't say that it makes him different, holier, closer to God, hating sin even more. What he says is that it makes him better than other people. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Verse 11. Now, here's the thing. If you don't feel completely approved at the center of your being, satisfied with who you are, there is the danger that you will do this too, that I will do this too. So hungry are we for this kind of approval that we will take something that has nothing to do with the express will of God and make it a marker for superiority. Paul addresses the same sort of thing at the beginning of Romans where he writes that moral behavior will get you nowhere. Let me give you an example of this from our own day. Worship style. There are people who are more introspective. They're quiet. They're driven by by rational thought. They're readers. They like the old hymns in the in this high church atmosphere, uh, 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 you know, ambiance. 
And then there are other folks who like to sing fast-paced praise songs and even raise their hands. And one group looks at the other and it feels superior. Say they're dead on the inside. There's no life in them. They can only sing the old songs. They're slow. There's no feeling to that. They're dead. The other group responds with, they're superficial. That group over there. They sing shallow praise songs repeating the same phrase over and over again. Quite frankly, there's no instruction in the Bible about what kind of music is holy and what kind of music is not. There are only holy lyrics about God. There are certainly examples of holy words to sing to God. And some of them are deep and some of them are simple. Is there anything in the Bible, though, about how emotionally expressive you should be? No. But we sneak it to the divine level and we make it equal with stealing and adultery and dishonesty. That's the outside-in approach. We say, I don't, I don't like myself. I need a sense of assurance. So I'm going to live out in the world where I can control things, a, a, a world out in the externals. Guess what? It's not going to work. Have you ever been around someone who was just constantly telling you how great they are? You know, you, you get on the phone and you can't say a word for 45 minutes because they're telling you about all of the, the things that they were involved in during the day and talking about how great they are. Why do they do that? Is it because they really think they're great? Or is it because they know that they're not? But they want you to think that way anyway. You see, that's how the outside-in thing works. God, you have to accept me because I do good things. I live a good life, a very good life, God, so you have to respect me. If this Pharisee was so secure in his relationship to God, he wouldn't have to prove it to God, would he? You know, one of the beautiful things about, about marriage, you know, my marriage, my wife accepts me unconditionally, lovingly, mercifully, generously, graciously, eagerly, enthusiastically. I know this for a fact. And so I don't have to come into the house each night and stand next to Ellen in the kitchen and say, Ellen, I did not abuse you today. I did not cheat on you today. I even went to the gym four times this week in order to stay in shape for you and I put my entire paycheck in the bank. Aren't you glad that I'm not like other husbands? Now think about how this Pharisee begins his prayer. He prayed about himself. I thank you that I'm not like other men. When you write a thank you note, you don't usually write about the things that, 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 that you've done. He says, I thank you, God. And that's the last time that God is mentioned in this prayer. And under the veneer of God-centeredness, which is prayer, there is self-centeredness. And that is why Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites. Their prayers were really not about God. They were about themselves. And he's not a bad man, this Pharisee, as culture goes. But he is a hypocrite in the kingdom of God. And this is why Jesus says in Matthew 21 that the prostitutes and the tax collectors are going to get in before the Pharisees. And Jesus says in the end that the good man is not the one who is justified before God. Which brings us to the inside-out approach. Now, how do, you, how do you find this righteousness, this approval? Well, according to Jesus' own teachings, it is in the way of the tax collector. 
Verse 13 again. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The New American Standard, uh, different from the NIV here, translates this correctly. There is this definite article before the word sinner. It is, be merciful to me, the sinner. The reason the tax collector says this is not because he is the chief of all sinners, as Paul might refer to himself in a letter to Timothy. He does it because, because that is what he recognizes when he looks at the inside of himself. The sinner. There is a lot of emotion being expended in this man's prayer. He's beating his breast. He will not even look up into the face of heaven. This is the way you do repentance. And it opens the door to approval. And when he says, be merciful to me, he does not use the usual Greek word for mercy. In Luke chapter 18, verse 38, the, which is the normal word for mercy when, a, is, you know, when the blind man sits on the road and begs for sight to be restored. That's the normal word, verse 38, for mercy. When this tax collector, in Luke chapter 18, in um, um, verse, verse 13, says have mercy, it is the word hilaskistai, which is only found here and in Hebrews. And that particular Greek word is asking God, it's a reference to, is asking to God for mercy to atone for His sins. You know, in the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was seen, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments, which meant that you really could not come close to God without recognizing the will of God as expressed in those commandments. I mean, who could get close to God under the scrutiny of the law? The point is no one. One of the reasons that Leviticus was written was to remind us that we are not holy before God. One of the reasons that we have Leviticus is to remind us that morally on our own, under our own uh, religious power, we're ugly. But there was on top of the ark a gold slab that was called the mercy seat. It was the, in Greek, the helasterion. It's from the same word group that we find in Luke chapter 18. And on the mercy seat, once a year on Yom Kippur, the blood of the substitute was put on it in order to satisfy the demands of the law. That word is found in Hebrews 2.17 where we read, Therefore He had to be made like His brethren in all things so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The tax collector is not saying God... Let me off the hook. That doesn't help because He is the sinner. But Jesus becomes the sinner in order for you to become the righteousness, meaning the acceptable, the approved, the embraced of God. And this is how Christians deal with the issue of approval. You, you, you have to know that Jesus loves you and that He has made atonement for you. 
And He has made such atonement for you that He can love you. And you don't have to wait for the end of your life in order to know that you're saved because He has accepted you now when you were baptized, when you confessed, when you repented, when you dedicated your life to Him through faith. You go from being like that tax collector, the one who beats his chest and understands without a shadow of a doubt, I am lost because I'm the sinner. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, He made Him who had no sin to be sin, to become the sinner in order for us to get that righteousness, that acceptability. And you know, when you have that, it really does transform your life. When you are accepted like that, not only does it give you an identity in a world where you know we live with some pretty superficial labels, and a lot of times we, you know, there's there's a, a sense of uh, rootlessness, and we don't really know where we're from or who we've come from or where our connections are, or very in touch with our origins. But it, it, it's more than that. It's 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 it's, it's knowing that that you have the most important thing in the world. You've been blessed with it. That relationship with God, that relationship of approval, being brought into His family. So that whatever else happens in your life, some things might be taken from you. There might be tragedy that comes. There might be some, some terrible crises that you have to wade through for a long period of time. There may be suffering that you experience for, 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 for weeks and weeks and maybe months and months. There may be disappointment over and over again. And all of those things hurt and all of those things are, are troublesome, but they don't devastate you because you have the one thing that you really want. And that is to stand in front of God with His approval and to see Him smile, the Creator of the world, to smile upon you. To smile upon you. And at that last day, knowing that there's this huge feast that's been set up, to hear God Himself say, Welcome. Welcome. Enter into your Master's joy. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And as we're all singing and praising God, some of our shepherds will be down here at the front. If there's any way that our church family, our shepherds, anybody uh, needing help, prayers, counsel, you'd love if you'd like to, uh, to be baptized tonight, to have your sins washed away, we can do that. If there's any need that we might serve you tonight with, then let these shepherds know down here at the front as we stand and sing together.